Florida mandates Asian American history in a surprising step for the state towards inclusion and diversity. And we might be getting it wrong when it comes to screens and kids and learning. We're going to talk about it today on The Citizen Stewart Show. Welcome to The Citizen Stewart Show, a podcast about education in America, where we dive deep into the top headlines and add new perspectives about our schools and our democracy. I'm your host, Chris Citizen Stewart, the chief influencer of EdPost, a media platform focusing on educational opportunity and justice for every child. And with me, as always, is my co-host Ravi Gupta, a former Obama staffer, and former superintendent of a network of charter schools in the South. Ravi, you were gone last week, so welcome back. Excited to be back. What did I miss? We had Neil McCluskey from Cato on last week to ask the question, what is the uniquely libertarian pitch to America about education? Because I think we know what the Democratic pitch is. We know what the Republican pitch is. And it'd be good to like just circle the rounds, maybe get somebody on at some point from the Green Party, uh, and maybe even Andrew Yang's forward party, just to say that to them. Like, what's your unique pitch about education to the United States? You should check out the show last week. It was really good. Oh, I did. Oh, good. I did, of course. I keep tabs on you. I'm watching you, Chris. <laughs> All right, well, listen, let's jump right in with the lightning round at the beginning of the show. We have three kind of things that I want to hit for a lightning round. The very first one is from Matt Martin on Twitter. He said, hey, Citizen Stewart, do universal voucher bills restrict money from going to schools that discriminate against students? I think he means on the basis of race, religion, sex, and disability. Seems like a bottom line for public funds. Would love to hear this discussed on the pod. So here we are on the pod. And we're going to discuss it just quickly. What do you think, Ravi? Well, first of all, do you think it's a non-starter for public funds going to any school that can discriminate on the basis of race, religion, sex, or disability? I think sex is the hardest one because I do believe in all boys and all girls schools. I just think that the state has an interest in making sure that if they are going to have all boys and all girls schools, that they should make sure that they're equally distributed, like almost a Title IX argument, right? And then you also have to untangle the rights of transgender individuals, which I think is a whole separate debate. So I think that one's a little trickier, but I do believe, just as I believe in excellence boys, excellence girls, here in Brooklyn, for example, are really good charter schools that receive public dollars. I believe that they should exist. I do not think that public dollars should be going to institutions that indoctrinate children into a specific religion. I think it's okay if they have religious affiliation. Like if there's like schools that are diocese schools that allow kids to opt out of religious class, et cetera, I think that's fine. I think that if you're sending public dollars to schools that require kids to learn a religion, I think it gets really dicey. And then of course, I think if you're discriminating on the basis of race, you shouldn't receive public dollars, period. I hate this question. <laughs> and here's why, because this is a mixed situation. So first of all, I think the question implies or believes that public schools, traditional district public schools, don't discriminate on the basis of race, religion, sex, and disability. And I think that's a hard argument. Oh, I forgot disability, sorry. Uh, so two things. Number one, let's get one thing out of the way. School districts, traditional public schools discriminate in this way every day. They have for a long period of time. On the basis of race, well, there are magnet schools that hold seats for white students and don't give those seats to black students even when the white students don't show up because they have a cap on how many black students. For instance, in some states, like in Connecticut, the magnet law actually specifies that a magnet school can't have more than 75% black students. So once you get to the 76th 
percentage of the black student applying, that kid does not get into that school specifically on the basis of race. And it's being challenged and has been challenged for some time. That's a perverse outcome of desegregation policy. But that's discriminating on the basis of race. Of course, on religion, you know, listen, we can say in many ways, you're not allowed to bring your religion with you into a school. And sex, Ravi, you just pointed to there are all girls schools and all boys schools. And I support those you know, for whoever needs them or wants them. And on disability, you know, it'd be kind of harder to make this case, but there are ways in which you and I both know that there are ways in which people with disabilities are discriminated against on a routine basis. When it comes to things like tracking and discipline and punishment and all kinds of other ways, I think he's meaning they just won't let you into the school but I don't feel like that stops you from being discriminated against. Right. My mixed take on this one, though, is in the case of LaShawn Robinson in Connecticut, whose son was waitlisted for magnet schools that had spots open, but those spots were being held for white kids. And when the white kids didn't come, he still didn't get in because he was black. In that case, that seems like a super harsh case of me saying that's not the type of discrimination that I'm good with. Like, I'm good with Urban Prep that is an all-boys school for African-American boys in Chicago. I'm not for the magnet school that says we're holding these seats for another race and you can't get in because, because you have them. But I don't think that's what he's meaning. He's meaning, should vouchers be given to schools that openly say your family's gay and you can't come in? Or we're trying to keep certain types of students out of our school. And I'm a little different than you on the religion one. I'll say this much. America's an outlier when it comes to not supporting religious education. So most of the civilized world funds, you know, the UK and Europe and lots of places fund private schools that have an explicit religious basis to them because they realize that they are pluralist nations and religion's a very intimate part of the human experience. You don't turn that off when you go somewhere. So that the idea that you're going to fund publicly in a way that discounts such a major part of people's lives doesn't make sense to me. I think it's contextual though on the religious front, right? Like let's say you live in one small town and there's one private school, it happens to be a religious school and there's a voucher bill and you live in Maine or something, right? This was the case that the Supreme Court decided recently. And let's pretend that that school basically is the only place you can go because like the nearest public schools 50 miles away or something like that. And the state passes a voucher bill and you go there and that school is requiring you to attend religious activity. I would, if I were a policymaker, I would require that school to allow you to opt out of that religious activity if they're using mm-hmm. a voucher mm-hmm. to attend that. I wouldn't say they can't accept it. And I'd be practical about it because I also know you're going to walk through the doors. There's going to be assemblies and iconography and all sorts of stuff that is religious, but I would keep a pretty wide latitude for the family to opt out of actual religious instruction, prayer, et cetera, if that school is going to receive public dollars. But I I also think like most religious institutions, like I, I went to Catholic school in part for my education. They don't really, most religious institutions are pretty practical about this kind of stuff. So I think these are kind of outlier cases by and large. Well, I don't like the word you used earlier when you said they're indoctrinating kids <laughs> because it's literally their religion. And if Catholics open schools where everybody can come, fine. But if there are Catholic schools, like many of the ones that I knew in New Orleans, which do require that you go to mass every morning and you participate or whatever, you know that when you're going to that school. So I don't know why anybody would enroll in a school 
where they knew that they were against the religious backgrounds and the practices for that particular school. Like I wouldn't go to an Amish community and say, we need electricity, right? <laughs> it is tricky though. And the Supreme Court just decided a case where the kids literally can't make it to a public school. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, those are the cases. And then I think it is indoctrination if that's the school that you have to go to. And the state is taking into account the fact that they're giving out vouchers when they're allocating public mm -hmm. school facilities, for example. Right. And so they're saying, all right, we have less urgency to get to that remote corner of Maine because now we're giving kids vouchers to go attend the schools. Now, I know these are exceptional cases, but the one in Connecticut you mentioned is also an exceptional case and one that I also think is going to fall at some point. Which one's an exceptional case? The magnet school one? The magnet. No, no, that's not exceptional at all. What you just described, there's no way this Supreme Court would allow that to stand. It's been held up many times. I know, but so is affirmative action in the past. It's hard to imagine based on this Supreme Court's reading of the law that a program like that would be allowed to exist. I think it was either Roberts or Alito said, discrimination on the basis of race is discrimination on the basis of race, right? Something to that effect. Like, that's their jurisprudence. So I would be surprised. I mean, we could bet on it, but I can't imagine that that would stand for much longer. And this is the lightning round. So we should put some lightning on this round. So like to close this one out, yeah. I would like to see the magnet school one fall, but it's been such longstanding part of the history. You may be right when you bring up affirmative action, it might go that direction. It might leave. But the idea that this has escaped the majority of the public's understanding of what actually is taking place in the traditional public schools is specific to magnets. Like when I first found out about this, I was incredulous and believed there's no way this can be legal until I dug into the law and saw that it's actually longstanding law. It's the way they've been doing business. Like the idea that this one black kid, and let me make the story worse. He was 16. He was a geek. He was a nerd. And this was a science school that he really wanted to go to. And he actually ended up getting very depressed and dropped out after that. I suspect you think that's wrong, right? I think that's wrong that they're excluding that kid. Absolutely think it was wrong. I was incredulous. I couldn't believe that it was legally true. Well, let's put a pin in that and remind you that you thought it was okay for us to do that to Asian American kids a couple episodes back. I did not think that was okay. Yeah, you did. You said that you didn't want a 100% Asian American no, no, schools. No, no, no. I never said, and just let's to be clear for the record for this show, that somebody should look at an Asian kid and say, because you're Asian, we're holding this seat for somebody else other than you. And I don't know of any place or any schools that are actually doing that. I know of places where they're using racial balance as one factor of many amongst qualified people to get into a place. And they're using test scores in some places as the most crude form of how they're going to make it happen and do it, which easily makes it gameable for the system. I mean, if you're the son of doctors and lawyers and whatnot, you use test scores as a way to admit people. Oh, I'm so surprised of what happens, you know, that all the kids end up being, you know, better prepared. Racial balancing to me is just another way of saying what that Connecticut district is doing, right? They call it racial balancing. I call it discrimination. I mean, listen, this should be a show like we're putting this in a lightning round because I'm fascinated by the arguments. Like I'm fascinated by the different sides of this. It almost would be great to have like the desegregation lawyer people and the kind of neo-Confederates who hate anything that actually makes schools fairer for people of color, specifically black people, you know, the group you represent. It'd be great if we could just get all these different groups onto one show. <laughs> oh, please. Oh, please. please. Uh, I spent my prime years educating only black children, Chris. Oh, that's so racist. That's so terrible. <laughs> yeah, that's racist. That's what true racists do is they give their 20s over to educating black kids in North Nashville. That's what the neo-Nazis are doing right now. I heard it on a neo-Nazi on 4chan. They were saying, listen, if you really want to be subversive, educate black children. 
children. Yeah. All right. What do we got next? Lightning round item number two. What should we teach girls to prepare them for the sexism in the world that they will inherit, if anything, in schools? Do schools have a role? So on a recent Lost Debate podcast, you and Ricky went back and forth. You mostly defer to her, but I mean... <laughs> Such a take. Such in, a take. In this clip... <laughs> I did not defer to her in that segment. Uh, that is not true. You mostly did. But you guys in this segment, and for our listeners, you could tell them a little bit about it. There's a beer commercial now. It's the newest beer kind of woke gate, because now there's a beer commercial that features women in a way that is supposed to be empowering and supposed to be saying, hey, we're taking back our power or whatever. You can say a little bit more about that, but Ricky's take on it was it's pandering, it's paternalistic in a way. She would never spend her money on something where she believes that it's pandering to her basically to get her business based upon her identity as a woman. And you kind of push back a little bit in saying there were some problems the way that beer commercials used to depict women. And that was a real problem that was being solved. My question to you is, I wonder if you think that that's anything that schools should have a hand in. They have 50% of their population are girls. Those girls are very definitely encountering things in life that are gender related in terms of discrimination against them. Should you teach them that? And should you do anything to prepare them and arm them for exactly that? For sure. So two things. One is you can go back and listen to that segment. There's no reasonable read on that segment that I was deferring to Ricky. I spent the entire segment talking about how the right-wing boycott of Bud Light is trying to erase the identities of trans and gay people. So I definitely was not deferring. But the second thing is I do believe that there's a place for schools to teach this. And I think you could do it in ways that are very, I mean, people will find reasons to argue with anything, but there are ways you could teach kids just based on statistics about discrimination. Like that up until this year, I think there were more CEOs named John than there are female CEOs in the Fortune 500. Wow. <laughs> and I think there still are. If you take James, Robert, and John, there are 60 CEOs, I think, in the Fortune 500 with that name compared to 41 women as of this year. So that's just three names, three male names more than all women. That's bananas. Yeah. So you teach kids some of these statistics and give them the tools to figure out why this is going on you know, talk about historic discrimination, how it affects present day, how it, some of it persists, you know, and this gets to not just women's issues, but all types of discrimination and inequality is the complicated relationship between past and present discrimination and outcomes is like very hot right now in education circles and debates and what we call systemic racism or systemic sexism. Like, I absolutely think there's a place for teaching that in schools. What about you? You know, I just quickly say, I don't have a, like, I think it's an important discussion to have because I believe when I looked at that clip, there was a lot of things to unpack. Number one, there is a very true story to teach young people about consumerism, about business, about marketing about how all that works. You can unpack that clip in so many different ways, right? I do think, for instance, going back a few years, when Cheerios put the first multiracial family into a commercial and they had to shut off the comments because the comments were so horrible that it was the first depiction of a black man and a white woman with a biracial child in a commercial. Now, Ravi, this happened in recent time, look it up, that this was a big deal. My family being depicted in a commercial was a big deal, right? In our lifetime. Alabama was the last of the states to take the anti misogyny laws off the books in 2000, right? It's that recent that they took off the books that a family like mine could even exist. You know, we're a multiracial family. I'm not saying that I went out and bought Cheerios after that. I'm not saying that I went out and thought, oh my God, you got me, man. Let me buy some Cheerios. I'm just saying it broke a cultural barrier. 
that had been really deeply problematic for a family like mine in terms of public perception of my family, representation of my family. And I I don't think that people know this. It's still deeply uncomfortable for my family to travel to certain parts of the United States. Like a car trip from my house to go 18 miles across the country to visit a family member does engender some uncomfortable situations in ways that I don't think other families have to always deal with or even have to think about. So representation like that, I think, makes a difference. You could teach young people from a lot of different angles. One, it could have been taught through the sexism or consumerism or business or whatever. There's just different ways to unpack. I can imagine a really clever social studies teacher taking an issue like that and doing a lot with it. I also can hear in my ear a bunch of parents complaining. Oh my God, you're trying to turn them on to the wokeness, you know, to the woke thing. Yes. Anyways, that's my take. I don't know if you have any pushback on that. If not, we can lightning. Let's lightning on to the third round of the lightning round. A school district in Colorado is getting its teachers from the Philippines. This isn't exactly a new thing. This has happened with nurses before. We've gotten nurses from the Philippines. And we have other countries that actually have just started educating their people for niches in the United States. Like, you know, some countries are preparing tech people to come to the United States and take the tech jobs. Ravi, help me understand why a country like the United States cannot produce teachers and needs to import something so important to one of the major systems in the United States, which is education. Well, import is such a dehumanizing word. I generally think that immigration is a really important mechanism tool to fill needed jobs within our society and to improve our country generally. And I think that just as my dad came to this country to be a doctor and serve a really important need that society has that, by the way, we continue to have and we don't allow enough doctors into this country. I don't see any reason why we shouldn't do the same for teachers, for people doing childcare, for people doing domestic care, for people doing social work, for people doing service sector jobs. Any jobs that we need as a society, if we have a scarcity of them, we should allow people to come here who are eager to do those jobs and qualified to do them, or even close to qualified to do them. I feel like that's an immigration answer, though, Ravi. I feel like that's an immigration answer that's not necessarily like a pipeline answer, though. Well, I think it's important to mention just because if we don't talk about that, then I think we're somehow assuming that it's a problem that these people are coming here. And I actually think it's in many ways a good thing that they're coming here. It means that this is a country people want to move to and they want to work in. And it's great. We should allow them to do so. On the flip side, why we're not training people to do this, I think it's complicated. I think one is that this is a historically period of low unemployment. So it's really hard to get people to enter professions that don't pay a lot. And depending on where you live, teaching could either pay a decent wage or pay really, really low wages. Like if you're in Mississippi or Idaho, it's a much different environment right now than if you teach in, say, New York City or some other places that pay better. And even in New York, like, you know, we've covered this. I can't remember if it's on this pod or somewhere else. Like all my misgivings about the teachers union aside, and and in part they're responsible for this, you look at the dramatic increase in K-12 spending relative to inflation over the past 30 years. And then you look at teacher salaries. There's a huge gap there. We're just spending more and more money for more and more administrators and other stuff within the system, but we're not compensating teachers in any way requisite to the increase in funding across the system. And so I think that's part of the problem. I don't even know how much of it's the training, because if we were paying people more, because teacher training sucks generally, like we do more of our teacher training, like honestly, I don't know if we should be putting more people through those programs, but I think making it a profession that more people want to go to, yeah, I think that that is a national crisis. So I agree with you on all the 
immigration stuff, but I don't think that's the point. I just really think that the point is we have a broken pipeline system in the United States. I do think that there's something, we have a ton of research on the fact that same race teachers and racial matching of teachers makes a difference for the kids that are the most struggling, especially black teachers for black students. And we can't produce enough of them and we have too few of them. I feel like ideas of bringing people from outside the country in countries where they have training systems too. So somehow they're capable of training and getting teachers. Then it says to me the reason that they're able to do it is because they have people that are willing to work for less. And that is the reason. So if the idea that you want to have discount teachers, then that all makes sense to me why a country like the United States can't produce teachers. It's because we want discount teachers. We don't want to pay what teachers deserve in this society for the role that they play in this society. So what we will do is the same that we've done with NAFTA and we've done with globalism in other ways is we'll find the lowest bidders in other places who will provide us a cheaper product. And that's not to dehumanize the people that do that. I mean, listen, We would have $28 heads of lettuce if it weren't for the fact that there's immigration. It doesn't mean that I believe that there should be exploitation of people from other places who see America as like the shining city on the hill that they want to get into. And we definitely shouldn't do it in education. That's like one of the worst places, I think, for us to continue this cycle of massive capitalist way of like looking at education doesn't make sense to me. Anyways, lightning round over. Let's move on. The slowest lightning round in the history of lightning rounds. I know. We got to call it something different. It can't be lightning. It's got to be like molasses round. Thunder. (laughs) Thunder round. Well, listen, let's jump into our first segment here. You know, this is kind of interesting. Florida takes a step into diversity and inclusion in a way that's surprising to a lot of people. It should be surprising to a lot of people. And this is my own commentary on it. A recent bill signed by Republican Governor, Florida Governor Ron DeSandwich, uh, signed House Bill 1537 into law on May 9th, 2023. The broader education bill includes a requirement that Asian American history be taught in part in K-12 instruction. You would think that this is a good thing to say that Asian American history should be added to the canon, to the portfolio of things that are taught to kids in schools. I definitely want my kids to learn Asian American history if it's not being taught already as part of the portfolio of things that they should learn about their fellow Americans. We used to call such a thing ethnic studies, and it just should be a good thing. Florida has a requirement that you teach African-American history and other forms of history, including, you know, groomer stories about like Thomas Jefferson and others. So why not teach Asian-American studies? Well, uh, there was some instant pushback on this particular item, uh, and I'm going to tell you why. The first thing is that people think that this is a cynical move, political move on the part of the governor, especially a governor who is in other ways trying to limit what can be taught about race and sex and gender. There was a statement put out by the Coalition for Asian American Children and Families, and it says, as advocates for education systems that value diversity, inclusivity, and integration, the Coalition of Asian American Children and Families is deeply concerned that Florida's new law mandating the teaching of Asian American and Pacific Islander history comes as elected officials and other leaders are systemically dismantling the full teaching of Black LGBTQ, and other marginalized histories in schools. And to that, they reject any attempt to portray Asian American and Pacific Islander communities as a model minority, 
especially when that narrative sows division between communities of color. They're not the only ones that tweeted this. Others did too, and I won't go into all of them, but you know, other representatives of Asian American groups came out to say, hey, this isn't the win that we think it is. So Ravi, what's your take on Florida's step, in my mind, maybe the right direction, and then the backlash to it? I think the simple question I'd ask anybody is, do you think people should know about, this is what it says in the bill, the incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II, immigration, citizenship, and the contributions of Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders to American society. Like, that's the kind of stuff that's in here. Do you think people should learn that? The answer is yes. Do you want to cut off your nose to spite your face to just show Ron DeSantis who's boss by not teaching kids about the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II? That's an absurd proposition, in my mm -hmm. opinion, and a misplaced sense of allyship, especially when I pulled up the page for African-American history right now, even after all of the nonsense that DeSantis was trying to pull around AP African-American history and the DEI legislation and all of that that we've covered before— there is an extensive section on African-American history. One could argue there could be more, but there's a lot there, right? And you could both believe there can be more African-American history while also believing that Asian-American history has a place in history. There are 18.4 million Asian-Americans in America. And yes, it's a complicated history. It's part of American history. And so I do think it should be taught. I think a lot of these groups, I understand what they're doing. They're, they're trying to be good citizens and, and allies. But I think... They shouldn't, like, this is an absurd outcome. That's like saying, like, in, you know, in all these states that are pushing anti-trans legislation, that African-American civil rights groups should rescind their rights and their history as a way to show the state legislators who's boss. Like, that's only helping them. And so, to me, I think, like, treat this separately. Continue to fight as allies show up when somebody's calling for you to, you know, to protest Anything that you think is wrong about what's going on with the AP American history or the DEI bills or the Stop Woke Act or whatever and show up and do everything you can for that. But don't like erase Asian American history from the history books as some way to teach Ron DeSantis a lesson. That seems silly to me. YK Hong tweeted DeSantis signing a bill requiring AA. PI history in the same breath as banning the teaching of black history and pushing anti LGBTQIA legislation is a classic implementation of the model minority myth. It is meant to drive a wedge within people of the global majority. This is this is a factually inaccurate tweet. Like DeSantis didn't ban the teaching of black history. This is why I think like in order to fight people like DeSantis, you give him the victory he wants by lying about what he's trying to do. And this is what I think is my problem with some of the press coverage of this is that you have to really work hard. Like I have to really, I had to really work hard today to actually look up the standards myself. Because if you read some of these articles and look at some of the tweets, you'd think that there's no African-American history in Florida. And so I think like being precise here really matters. And some people are painting with such a broad brush because DeSantis, like Trump, blinds people sometimes because you hate somebody so much and they, and they give you a lot of reasons to not like them that you start to lose your wits about you and you start going down rabbit holes and saying things that are untrue. And then it undermines your cause because there are persuadable people here. And I think you need to say what it is, which is they didn't ban black history in Florida. That's just not accurate. Well, okay, let me challenge you a little bit on this, because you kind of just did the same thing with Asian American history. They are already teaching this history in Florida. So to say anything about this law doesn't mean that you're trying to 
prevent Asian American history from being taught, or you're not trying to prevent or exile Asian American history in any way by critiquing it. They are literally already teaching Asian American history in Florida. Well, it's kind of happening by accident. Let me read you SS.2.C.2.5, second grade social studies, the current standards before this law was passed. You have to evaluate the contributions of African Americans, Hispanics, Native Americans, veterans, and women. No mention of Asian Americans. Now, you could teach Asian American history, but you are not required to it in that specific standard in class. And if you go through the standards, there's a ton of standards like this. So, yeah, you could teach about any kind of history you want, but this is about what is required right now. And right now, what is required in Florida is that you teach African American history. There's a whole page of it that links to all the different standards of it on the Florida Department of Education page. And to me, if I would have read this, there's a couple sentences in there that give a game away that it's Florida, but by and large, most of the stuff that's in there could be in New York or it could be in Massachusetts, you know? So I don't know. I just think, say it for what it is. It's still, you could still say it's wrong. You could say what he did with AP American history was wrong. We've talked about it extensively on this podcast. You could say that the DEI bill is wrong. By the way, the DEI bill affects Asian Americans too, right? The LGBTQ moves he does affects Asian Americans too, which is why these groups can show up and protest that while also supporting the inclusion of standards that require the teaching of Asian American history, including some rather heinous acts that our country should learn from, right? We should be learning from those things. I think when I read his tweet, I have a different reaction than yours. I get what he's saying. So like you're asking for a level of precision from him, maybe because you don't agree with him, but I actually, not parsing words, I understand what he's talking about, what Ron DeSantis has done to make a show pony of black history. I understand what Ron DeSantis, like I'm, I'm not a non-political person or am I asleep? I recognize what he's talking about. Ron DeSantis has made black history, black studies, black political thought a whipping boy for the benefit of his political career for a white audience that likes to see black people get beat up on. So I exactly know where this guy's tweet is coming from, and I know what he's saying. Now, maybe there's a portion of the American public that is not very sophisticated and doesn't understand any of these issues, and you maybe have to talk down to them. But Twitter is a medium for a more educated group of people in the United States. That's just like empirically true. Like more college-educated people are on Twitter than Facebook. So maybe if I wanted to have a Facebook discussion about this, or maybe even a backyard conversation about this, I'd have to dumb down the language and maybe say you know, this is what I mean by banning black history. I mean that he has surgically attempted to remove the parts of black history that he doesn't want anybody learning, including black students, even though it is part of their heritage and their scholarship and their lineage. And this is what I think is so important about the Asian American allies, who I think should be doing what you're saying a little bit. They should be, one, saying, we believe it's a positive step in the right direction to mandate that Americans learn about the contributions that Asian Americans have made to this society. And we are also not dumb people. We understand the political play of a person who is nationally beating up on all of these outgroups, all of a sudden grasping on to this one other group. There's a history to that with the model minority thing. It has always been used for white supremacy purposes. So we're not going to play along with that part of it. I think they could do the two things can be true thing. Absolutely, you should be teaching this already. There are 11 states that are actually passing similar things, California being one of them. So this isn't a red state, blue state thing. Other states are trying to demand that this history be included. And I'm pluralist. I'm an inclusionary person. I like inclusion. I want my kids who are not Asian American 
taught Asian American history and their contributions to this society. Absolutely. We generally call that DEI and diversity, equity, and inclusion. And that's exactly what this governor is outlawing in his state. So I don't think that there's anything wrong with making political commentary on that part. All right. Well, shall we talk about some hardcore learning stuff, Chris? Yeah. So a recent study reported in Ed Week, but coming out of MIT, suggests that schools should embrace technology sort of. Digital games are better for student motivation and enhance student learning when utilized properly. But traditional, and that should read as paper, learning is still showing better outcomes for fundamental skills like reading, which I don't believe. Anyways, I think this idea around gamification and how screens are used versus just whether screens are bad or not, I think is an important discussion for me, because I'm jumping into the future at some point, and I believe in the future we're going to figure out that we were way more ludite about all of these technologies, and we were getting off board on a couple of studies here and there that made us keep a very ludite mindset that we don't see yet. So I'm being a futurist. So if you are in a future year listening to this podcast, if you have unearthed this after the apocalypse and you're listening to this, just know I was one of the people who predicted ahead of time that misuse of technology was driving a lot of the fuel for our kind of anti-technological views and defeating techno-optimism. But I want to be on record as one of the voices who said that ahead of time. And I feel vindicated a little bit by this study. Now tell me why I'm not vindicated by this study, Robbie. There's one article and one series of studies that vindicate you and one that does the exact opposite. <laughs> so let's start with the one that's vindicating you, which is this Allison Klein article in Ed Week, which talks about this study from Starland University, which is a meta-analysis by researchers that looked at traditional lectures versus games. And this is a pretty rich, you know, this is a meta-analysis. There's a lot of different studies, but some of these studies include pre-test, post-testing from kids using different methodologies, surveys, interviews, observations, and essentially they found that on a variety of metrics, kids, it's particularly more effective to use a game than a lecture in math and science in particular, although the data was pretty uh, positive across the board and that it makes kids more engaged, it immerses them better, you know, it's more personalized and more motivating. And this is particularly true if the games are aligned to learning objectives. Obviously, if you just have a kid play Madden NFL or whatever, they're not going to learn a whole lot about a whole lot. But that games could be a useful tool in learning is essentially what they found. And how convinced are you that this is a good finding that we should run with in some way? I think you keep tinkering with it. I think it's promising. I'm more sold that this is a tool for math and science than it is uh, in reading, especially, you know, because there's a lot of data out there that screen reading is not great. There's this article in MIT Technology Review, and this is the finding that is not good for you, Mr. Kindle, that basically outlines the difference between paper reading and reading with an adult next to you who helps you versus reading on screens and reading on screens with the help of some kind of digital assistant. And I'll read you some findings from this quote. In one study, researchers found that three to four-year-old children had more activation in language regions of the brain when they read a book with an adult like a parent than when they listened to an audio book or read from a digital app. When they read on an iPad, activation was lowest of all. In another study, MRI scans of eight to 12-year-olds showed stronger reading circuits in those who spent more time reading paper books than those who spent time on screens. And then they have a whole separate paragraph about a meta-analysis from 2019 of 33 different studies that show students understood more informational text when they read on paper. So it seems like on the reading front, you still want to have kids read from paper. You still want to have them read with an adult. But when it comes to 
certain other learning, games can be really effective. And my sense from this is a well-designed school and well-designed household gives kids opportunities to learn on different modes. It gives them deep concentration time away from screens, and it gives them access to high-quality instruction on screens, and that we continue to monitor how this goes, because the screens, the technologies are evolving. They could evolve for the good, they could evolve for the bad. Yeah. All right. I'm going to make my pitch to you, Mr. Educator. I want to see what you think here, <laughs> right? So I think that it's really important that we're talking about younger children who are acquiring reading when we make that type of claim that you just said. Because the way that we teach adults to read, the way that we teach people to read as they go further in their reading journey requires them to start doing more than just look at the text and take the text in. We start teaching them things to like make notes in the margin, to circle important points, to put clips on pages that they need to come back to with different color shadings. If you look at some of the reading systems that people have perfected for college students, for instance, to really, there are books called like how to read a book, right? Like, and it's not just reading the text on the page. And when you think about, have you ever seen, I don't know how you read Ravi, maybe this is like the same way that you do it, or maybe it's different. But all the writings in the margins and all that stuff, I was never taught that way coming up because you don't destroy books in that way. Like, oh my God, you don't put a pen in the book. Like, that's crazy. That's crazy talk. I have so many very educated friends. If you if they lend you a book sometimes, uh, they'll be like, oh, just so you know, it's like all marked up, right? Yeah. I mean, this is what my books look like. Is they're all written on, you see, this is what all my books look like. Yeah. Yeah. So this to me comes down to a couple of things that I think are important. Are we teaching kids to read that way? What are the notes that you make? How do you capture the most important points of a text that you're reading? How do you make sure that it's available for you to go back to so that you can capture it and put it into your second brain for retrieval later? All of these things are things that are made easier to do if you do Kindle reading or if you do even iPad reading than if you're using a physical book, right? It slows you down to do what I am talking about in terms of capturing whole pieces of text, adding them to your notes, putting them into your personal data management system, of all the books that you've read before. There is a difference though in how you do that. So for, I have different, I read both digitally and paper. I probably read paper probably three to one on paper and I still transfer that stuff into my book notes and actually find that a really useful process. And there definitely are studies about this that in when it comes to retrieval and retention, mm -hmm. the, mm -hmm. the whole act of going back and typing back out the, the key points that you've learned from a book actually helps you retain the knowledge from that book. So I do think that's important. But it's only one consideration, right? Like That's a huge consideration, though, because our brains aren't very good storage mechanisms. They're very good retrieval or on-the-spot learning, which is why you need to put your notes from the books you read into a place. Yeah, for sure. Right? In an organized place. Unless you're going to keep doing surface reading. Yeah. And America has many people that graduate high school never read another book again. So when we talk about like, it was found out that kids learn better this way in terms of reading, it's at such a low bar of reading, first of all. And number two, it misses, escapes this very important point. We're not experts on teaching kids how to read, period. So this type of science doesn't move me. Like we're terrible at teaching them how to read with our current standards. Like the current way we're teaching them to read doesn't allow them to, to get to the point where your book, the way your book you just lifted up, the way that looks with marked up and all that 
We're not getting Americans to that place. Yeah, but I think like this is a part of what it means. To, this question is really relevant as to what it means to teach kids to read well. And you know, this MIT article quotes a study from the Reboot Foundation, which evaluated thousands of students across 90 countries. So this is not just about us in America. And found that fourth graders who use tablets in nearly all their classrooms scored 14 points lower on a reading test than students who never use them. They called this score gap equivalent to a full grade level of learning. So... This is a question that's relevant to it. So it seems like right now. 14 points. Yeah. That makes the case. The 14 points on it. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I mean, listen, let me tell you an anecdotal story. You know, this is from years ago and people have followed me for years. No, I've written about this before. I had a friend that worked at a school that had a very bad problem with black students being off-roaded before high school. So if you looked at the number of black students in the main grades before high school, the number was, you know, pretty sound. And then if you looked at high school students, you would have to ask yourself, where did a lot of the black kids go? Did they move or what's going on here? And it turns out a lot of them were at the ALC, which is the Alternative Learning System, and they were almost being railroaded there. And like many school districts, they had a problem and it was systemic and they had to fix themselves or whatever. But I knew someone who was working specifically with the black boys in that district. She was hired as kind of like a person to do that job. And she called me once to tell me about something she was actually excited about. And she's like, Chris, I'm trying to get all my kids into Mr. Pie's class. You've got to come and check out Mr. Pie's class. I'm thinking, Mr. Pie, wow, okay, this is interesting. I go and visit. Mr. Pie is a guy who got written up nationally for gamifying his classroom. And the kids were so engaged in his classroom in a way that it was making her job easier. She was trying to usher in kids from other classes to get them in his class. One of the things is he took all the textbooks from the district were still on the shelf, not even opened on the shelf. And he laughed to me telling me something. He said, watch this. And he called the class into order and pretended like he was about to take one of the textbooks off of the shelf. And all the kids were like, no, oh man, blah, 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 whatever. Mr. Pye had, I'll give you the rundown. NBC News talks about it this way. In his third grade class, he has seven laptops, two desktop computers, two Nintendo DS portable gaming systems, 18 learning games, 21 digital voice recorders, and no homework. How well will his students do math and reading? The surprising answer has prompted education officials to think about how they might recreate such learning in other classrooms. The short story is his kids really did well, outperformed, and he had all the books, the textbooks sitting on the shelf still. I actually tried to play a couple of the games and I did not do very well because he had a couple of algebra games that the kids were really playing and excelling on. And one of the kids was showing me and I was like, dear Lord, do not have this child ask me to participate in this because I'm going to lose this game. And this is what's so important to me is that he told me that over the holiday break, over Thanksgiving break, the kids kept playing the game because they didn't want to lose their position. So they kept playing at home. Now, these are games with math concepts embedded in the games where you had to actually solve math problems to go forward. Completely gamified all screens. So yeah, what I'm hearing is that you've got your classroom and the Reboot Foundation has thousands of students across 90 countries. And, you know, we could weigh one against the other. Well, I mean, there is a thing about saying it's the way we've always done it. I think I definitely think there should be no room for innovation in education. You should just keep doing th things the way you've done them before. <laughs> like I definitely, because you know what? This is what I'll say about Mr. Pye's classroom. First of all, black students did much better in that district in the year they were with him. The next year, the year before and the year after him, it was Sucksville for them, right? And you want to know who is Mr. Pye's biggest antagonist because of this 
environment that he was having in his classroom. The union couldn't stand him. Your people, your friends. The teachers in the grades after him couldn't stand him because they didn't want to continue. And the kids started to expect a different form of education. Not knowing, dear Mr. Pai, I would say that my take on just common sense and trying to synthesize the two articles that we're talking about today is, I think it's really promising, a lot of data around some of these games. There definitely seems to be reason to incorporate this into instruction. And there seems to be really good evidence for blocking off time during the day to get kids off of their screens and reading actual text in the classroom away from computers. And both my common sense and the data seems to suggest that that combination could be really powerful. That's where I am on this. Well, I think my thing is I'm thinking more in the innovative space now, like what you do next. I do know I have a couple boys upstairs that can't stand reading. I have a daughter who's just voracious. She's just reading everything, you know, you can put in front of her. And when I say that we might go to the library or Barnes and Noble, she lights up like a magnet. I mean, just like a light. I mean, she's just like, oh my God, yes, let's go. She's like excited about the reading part. I've never seen such like boy disregard for reading and for text. It's just in their friend groups and throughout them, the way that the schools are doing reading now, they're doing in-class group reading, even in at the high school level and stuff, the idea that you would actually have to read a book. And it's particular amongst boys. Like, I don't know what the research would tell us about this, but it seems to be a thing, like getting boys to want to be readers. So you have to get the information to them. So I hope that there's someone somewhere, which I know that there are because of the work that we do, thinking about innovative approaches. A lot of people came from all across the world to visit Mr. Pie's classroom. And they didn't come because they had it all figured out already. I mean, the, the guys in the news all over the place is getting visits like my visit from all across the world because people are experiencing a decline in the interest in reading. And my particular interest was black boys at the time. Anything that turned on the light in their brain like that to me was interesting to me in terms of what can we do with this. But the system that he was in regularly chews up people like him and spits them out. So the only place to get his type of innovation is outside of the system. So I really hope people like the people that do like summit learning, who are really trying to rethink the way that technology can work in classrooms, you probably are aware of and know of within your own friend group, many people that are thinking about schools, how they can really kind of do things differently than the mainline traditional district does. Well, as always, we thank you guys for listening to this episode of the Citizen Stewart Show. I like to tell you each week that we love to hear from you. Any feedback that you can give us, whether it's through Twitter or voicemail messages or email, we love to hear from you. Tell us about how the show could be better. Give us some ideas from topics that you would like to hear. There are two ways that you can really do that and get that to us. The first way is to leave us a voicemail message at 321-213-9171. Again, that's 321-213-9171. 9171. Or you can send us an email at citizenstuartshow at thebranchmedia.org. Speaking of thebranchmedia.org, I like to always tell you, go and check out the site. The site has been redone and there are a lot of good things for you to delve into to find out more about Branch Media and what it's all about including some of the other shows that you should check out. If you like this one, you'll like those too. You can help us out by subscribing share the shows. If you really enjoy it, leave a review of any of the shows wherever you get your podcast. We truly appreciate it. Thank you guys for listening. We will see you next week on another episode of The Citizen Stewart Show. 